Hi everyone, this is Anne-Marie Lockhart and you're listening to Vox Poetica's 15 Minutes of Poetry. I'm here today with Kirk Judd, wonderful writer from West Virginia. Kirk, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I would like to start with a poem. Okay. Um, how about a short little poem that I wrote uh, last fall on the porch of my camp on the Greenbrier River in West Virginia, up in the mountains, in a little community called Buckeye. It's titled Buckeye Moon. I talk to the moon. She winks. She blushes. She hides behind clouds. She coyly wraps herself in fog. But sometimes, ah, uh, sometimes, she answers. <laughs> I love the way Moon makes the appearance in so many people's poems, but in so many different ways. And I, I think um, that is such a visual, visual poem. I can almost see where you wrote it from, and I have never been there. <laughs> well, it's a magical place in the mountains here in West Virginia. It sounds like a magical place. And you write about, you write about landscape and your world almost as if it, this, the, the ground itself is a character. Um, I, one of, it's one of the things I've always really liked about your writing. If you could talk a little bit about how, how the, the outer world, the geography, makes its presence felt in your writing, that would be great. Well, uh, sure, and I, I love the, the phrase that you used, the, the, the ground itself is a character, because it very much is here in West Virginia. West Virginia is uh, a presence unto itself. It's the youngest state east of the Mississippi, having been born of the, uh, of the Civil War, the only territory that, that changed hands. But the geography is such that the, the Appalachian Mountains, which are the eastern border uh, between Virginia and West Virginia, are so high and were so inaccessible and so steep that this country, the, the westward expansion of this country just kind of rolled over. There was so, it was so much easier to go through uh, Pen, uh, Pennsylvania and, and to Ohio to go west, or through the south to go uh, around the mountains to the south, that the westward expansion just kind of rolled over West Virginia and left it here. The trees, the, the, this, there was virgin forest in West Virginia up until the 1920s. Wow. Uh, which was not true in any other place east of the Mississippi. And uh, there are no natural lakes in West Virginia. All of the water runs out of this state. Uh, very few rivers run into the state of West Virginia. It's the highest average elevation east of the Mississippi. So. Uh, we're we're kind of isolated, and we've always uh, borne the, the stigma of the, the hillbilly and the redneck. The mine wars were here. Um, we're the only state that's ever been bombed by uh, the United States during the mine wars back in the 1920s. 
And so the the geography is lends itself to this isolated pioneer independence, I guess you would say. And, and that comes from the land and from the lay of the land as much as it does from the character of the people who live here. Hmm. It almost uh, it almost becomes a part of the fabric of the people that live there. You almost have to be a certain type of person in order to live there. I, I think that's true, very much so. And and we've had such an out migration of folks. Yeah. Um, everybody's been leaving for for fifty years here uh, since coal started its decline, and and it really did start to decline a long time ago. And when I grew up in West Virginia here in the 60s, uh, there were the three R's was reading and writing and Route 23, which took you out of the state to Detroit to, to work. Wow. And uh, I, I think the people that stayed are the ones who, like me, have never even considered leaving and, and wouldn't consider leaving under any circumstances. We, we, we like it here. And, and the it, it's very much generation the, the people that are here have been here for generations or a lot of us have been here for generations and uh, it, it's it's round into us it's, it's in our blood well it's it's the what we're talking about here is family and in one sense it actually doesn't even involve people really but the history that you speak of the landscape that you speak of these are all the things that populate that family culture as well in in your world Agreed. What brought you into writing poetry? Oh, uh, you know, I, I, I've been asked that a lot. Uh, I wrote my first poem in the, in the second grade. Uh, my, <laughs> mother, my mother would tell you that I wrote that in the second grade. It was a, a blatant ripoff of uh, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, uh, <laughs> which, which was and still is my favorite movie. <laughs> but uh, I, I seriously got into writing poetry in junior high school, and uh, I, I wrote a poem one night and uh, worked on it a little, and I liked it, and I took it to school and uh, worked with some of the teachers there, and they liked it. And uh, we had a little uh, uh, publication, a literary magazine in the county that I, that I grew up in in West Virginia called Wayne Writers. I was in Wayne County. And they published it, and uh, I just kept writing. And uh, when I went to college, I was encouraged, and I just kept right on writing and never quit. Well, you know what? I'm glad you didn't quit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, When you, I mean, we've talked so far about the way nature and your environment infuses your your world of poetry and your life, but as serves as an inspiration point for your writing. Um, tell me what else inspires your writing? Well, um, sound, music. Um, I'm a spoken word guy. I, I believe that poetry exists in the, in the mouth of the poet. And uh, you have to have the breath, you have to have everything that's going on. Poetry is, is a live art. And, and uh, I believe that what's on the page is a, is the documentation of the poem. It's not the poem itself. And so I do a lot of sound. Uh, I, I'm inspired by a lot of music. And there's a lot of music in West Virginia. Oh, yeah. Uh, a lot of 
great musicians who come out of the Appalachian area. And, and I grew up with that in my family uh, and, and uh, grew up with a lot of musicians. And so that inspires me. Whatever that music does to you, I, I, I'm able to, or I like to think that I'm able to, to recreate something of that in my, in my poems. Um, also, uh, the the uh, the uh, climate of uh, I don't want to say politics, but the the things that have isolated West Virginia uh, have you know we've been on what I think is unfairly treated by the media of, of this country and uh, those stigmas and stereotypes. Uh, the, the uh, uh, hillbilly elegy type of thing uh, as in, in forms my writing, uh, trying to let people know that, you know, that's not how we are. We, we like art and music and beauty and poetry and, and literature and, and things just like other people do. It, it, we're not what we are portrayed to be. Would you read us another poem on that note? Uh, on that note? Uh, sure. Uh, this is a little bit longer than the other one, but this one, uh, <laughs> I, I never thought of myself as an activist in Appalachia, but this poem showed up in the Activism in Appalachia issue of Now and Then magazine a few years ago. And so I became one, and I thought, well, you know, there's worse things than being an activist. <laughs> This is called The Campfires of the Hunters, The Economics of Controlled Harvesting. At night, the deer move out off the ridge to graze. One of the older does raises her graying head to gaze with silently accepting eyes far down the mountain at the blaze of the campfires of the hunters. Tomorrow, they will kill her for food. They'll need the meat. The winter will be long and cold, and the high cost of fuel for heat will cut into the food budget. The doe does not own the land on which she is killed. The hunters do not own the land on which they kill her. The state owns the land. The state regulates the hunters, and they've purchased licenses to avoid fines. When they finish the hunt, they'll return to their homes and their jobs in the mine. They mine the coal from under the land. They do not own the coal they mine. The coal company they work for does not own the coal they mine. The bank owns the coal. The state sells the mineral rights of the land to the bank. The bank leases the mining rights to the coal to the coal company. The coal company mines the coal and sells it to the power company. The power company burns the coal and produces fuel to run the mines and to heat the homes of the miners. The bank owns a controlling interest in the power company. Now the fuel bills will be so high because the power company has granted a rate increase. The eye of the state, which sells the rights to the bank, which leases those rights to the coal company, which sells the coal to the power company, which is controlled by the bank and regulated by the state. The power company sells power to the state, to the bank, to the coal company, and to the miners. At morning, the miners come yawning from the shaft, dark minstrel faces with eyes that have seen the hunter's fires. 
It's a very powerful poem. I definitely can appreciate why it was selected for that publication. Um, well, uh, you know, we have the largest out-of-state land ownership in Mississippi. Uh, nobody that owns all of these natural resources that we've had for these millions of years lives in the state. They don't pay taxes on it. They just extract it. Yeah. They extracted all the trees. They extracted all the coal. They're now extracting and tracking the gas out of the land. Uh, it's, it's, it's hasn't been pretty. Well, see, this is another thing. When I first heard your work, and I, I heard you reading your work at Bridgewater International Poetry Festival a few years back, and I, I was struck, the phrase that, that struck me was, you know, well quoted, the personal is political, right? Political is personal, I guess it's a circle, but um, it, I really felt that in your work, and I, I was really um, touched by the organic quality of your attachment to the things that you wrote about. It was very passionate and it was very well informed and it was informed not by somebody who's studied the issues, by somebody who's lived in this space, which is a very different uh, life to bring to a very dry subject that we all argue and debate about every day in our culture. Um, I, I agree. I, 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 just on that point, I had a student in a, in a poetry class, a creative writing class from Germany. And uh, she came back, and she was in my class when she was 16 in this country, and then she went back home to Germany. She came back when she was in university, and uh, she was studying Thoreau. And she asked me about, she and her, her professor had gotten into a discussion about what Thoreau meant when he said, when asked about uh, creating poetry and asking what he did, you know, what inspired him. And he, he said, chop wood. <laughs> and, and they debated on what that meant. And her professor had said, well, that means that you set yourself down and you write. And that's what you do. You work at your craft. He meant work. Chop wood means to do work. And I told her, no, Rebecca, that's not what Thoreau meant. Thoreau meant chop wood. <laughs> Thoreau meant to get out and live and experience and do the work. If you're going to write about being out in the woods, get out in the woods. Yeah. You know, don't read about it or don't watch it on television. Chop the wood, you do if you're going to write a poem about chopping wood. That's what he meant. And I firmly believe that's what he meant. Well, you have to live it. And your work is the embodiment of that principle, no doubt. Um, and I think an education for others when they hear your work and they, they under, I think that's, that's the way to understand that message, right? Yes, Thoreau is an excellent educator himself, right? He was the greatest in that regard. But it's that the, everyone can approach that, that space, their own space, like no one else can. You have a way into your world that no one else has. So when you write about that and you share that with other people, that's an education moment. It's a, an embrace, if you will, a, a human cultural exchange. You know, the thing that, that the only benefit really to being here amongst thousands of our kind <laughs> to have those moments. And that you, you bring poetry into that world, it becomes totally alive. I think that's everything poetry is designed to be. That's what you're doing. And people respond to it. 
Yeah, I, I, that's that's exactly what poetry should be, and it and it should be shared in a face-to-face uh, thing, not not through a book or not through a recording, but it should be just like music, just like old-time music. It, it needs to be a one-on-one, a a, a a person-to-person thing. That's when the magic happens. So you you told me of another project that you've been working on. I would love for you to share some of the details of that with our listeners. Well, uh, a good friend of mine by the name of Joseph Barrett was a, a wonderful poet who he had won some international prizes for poetry. He, he had played first in a, a haiku contest in Japan. He had he was a uh, and he had studied at Oxford. He had lived with the kibbutz in Israel. Um, he died very suddenly and very early in 1990. He had published two volumes of poetry, but at the time of his death, he had a fully developed manuscript ready to go. Um, I had a copy of that, and, uh, and a couple of other people had a copy of that. I kept in touch with his widow, and Finally, after 25 years in 2015, she said, yeah, let, let's see what we can do with this. So I shopped the thing around a little bit. I, I got it in shape. Of course, in 1990, there was no electronic copy, so I had <laughs> that done. Uh, cleaned it up and changed nothing, but just made it look right. And uh, the uh, Southern Appalachian Writers Cooperative got involved. A, gentleman by the name of, of, uh, of uh, Scott uh, Emerson uh, became involved and we he shopped it to Das Madres Press and and Das Madres is a very well respected poetry press near Cincinnati, Ohio and they agreed to publish it. So it came out in October of last year. I've been uh, doing some readings around the state because uh, no one knows about Joe. I mean, it, this was 1990. I mean, there's a whole generation that's come and gone uh, that don't know uh, about Joe. And he's, he's a very important poet in the literary landscape of West Virginia. And so I've been uh, going around and, and booking some readings and letting people now know about Joe. And it, and it, it always flips me out that people don't know about him because I did and I knew he was so important, but these people have never heard of him. And so I'm trying to rectify that and, and get this out here. The, the collection is called Blue Planet Memoirs, and it can be uh, accessed on uh, the Dos Madres Press website or on Amazon. I would love for you to um, share a, a link to that on uh, Facebook with me, and I'll, I'll push that out to um, all of our listeners as well. I will certainly do that. Um, it sounds like a beautiful collection and one that a lot of people would really enjoy and being introduced to someone that, that they maybe haven't had the chance to meet yet and won't in another way. What, what has that experience been like for you to kind of curate someone else's work? Well, um, Joe was, a, was, a, was rapidly becoming a haiku master and he studied a lot of Japanese uh, Zen poets as well as the Chinese Zen poets and so his, his work is kind of infused with that 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 haiku 
blend of, of Zen wisdom. And he, he introduced me, not well, I knew about haiku, but I didn't know about samurai, which is another form with not quite the, the, uh, the, the regulations or the, the so-called rules that exist around haiku. And so I, I found myself uh, going back and looking at what I had written then and what I'm writing now and, and find myself distilling uh, work that I think would, Joe would approve of. I, I still talk to him, you know, if yeah. you know what I mean. I bounce poems off of him like we used to do. And uh, and and so uh, if, if I may just share a quick uh, poem. Please. I had, I had written a, a, a haiku that said, plump red bird can hide in fruit-laden apple tree. Cool blue jay cannot. <laughs> but I thought, you know what? That's, I hear you, Joe. That's a little too wordy. <laughs> and so I just built that into what could be called a scenario. It just says, red bird can hide in apple tree. Blue jay cannot. <laughs> and, and somehow I think it's better than I and think so, so too. So I, I find myself uh, getting back into the spaces that we were in when we were writing it back in the seventies and eighties in West Virginia. And that—that's that right there is magic too, you know. And that's the magic of poetry and, and connection that you you know we we talk about, we explore it all the time, and you just put it completely into illustration for everybody. That's a beautiful story, and that's a beautiful poem. And I love, I love the way uh, your friend helped you edit it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We are out of time. I'm sorry to say, because I could do this for uh, another hour and a half and not, you know, not run out of any new new ground to cover with you, Kirk. Um, well, I, I could go right with you. Let's talk a bit about once more about where to find this book. And then would you tell us where anyone can maybe find you in person at a reading or an event coming up? Okay, well, uh, again, Blue Planet Memoirs is Joseph Barrett, and it can be found at the Dos Madres, D-O-S-M-A-D-R-E-S Press website, or it can be found on Amazon. And... Uh, my books, uh, you can find me on Facebook, and I will be doing readings from my latest book, which is titled uh, My People Was Music, um, on March the 1st in Charlestown, West Virginia, March the 2nd in Shepherdstown, West Virginia, and March the 7th uh, in Beckley, West Virginia, at the Beckley Arts Center. I generally read in West Virginia and what, with what I'm doing now with Joe's book, I'm pretty much confining myself to West Virginia mm. uh, venues right now until I get this this done. It'll take it'll take me another year to, to finish this out. Uh, but I can be found on on uh, Facebook under Kirk Judd, and uh, from there you can find links to uh, to uh, all of my books. That is Kirk Judd, everybody. I want to thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us, Kirk, and sharing all that beautiful work. Thank you for having me. Everybody have a great day, and go write a haiku.
and uh, do it in the space that you're most familiar because we all want to share your world. Thank you.